This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. This project which we are doing with the University of Southampton as a part of an ESRC research programme. Um, and it's great that today we have got a particular presentation from Maria Grasso, whose book has produced several. We've agreed we're all going to plug each other's books throughout the <laughs> afternoon. Um, but we should start with Maria's. And she is an expert and researches political participation by different generations in different countries. So we shall hear from Maria in a moment. Then we'll hear from Professor Jane Falkingham, who's an old friend of us at Resolution. Work, we're working with her. She is director of the ESRC Centre for Population Change. And then you'll hear from our very own Sophie Hale. And Sophie is part of the team here in our Intergenerational Centre, and she's our principal economist at RES. And Sophie will give her observations too. Um, we're going to have, of course, a lot of online participation. Do start using the Q&A function. Put in your questions. We're on hashtag political participation. Uh, but first, Maria, thank you very much for coming here to Thanks talk about this theme. Uh, over to you. Thank you. Um, right. So slides will be here. Yeah, the yeah. slides will be oh, there okay. and up Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, uh, so uh, good evening. Um, it's uh, great to be here to talk to you about my research on uh, political participation and political generations in Western Europe. So, uh, starting with a little bit of theory. Um, Mannheim, Karl Mannheim, in The Problem of Generations, uh, famously argued that youth experiencing the same concrete historical problems may be said to be part of the same actual generation. Now, this is probably one of the most famous definitions of generations historically. Um, and the idea of political generations uh, really relies on two key aspects, formative experiences and impressionable years. So the idea is that generations coming of age in specific historical periods will have these formative experiences in these particularly impressionable years of uh, uh, late adolescence and early uh, adulthood, and that these, gener these, these experiences will impress them particularly and will then differentiate generations in their patterns of political participation, their political values, as they age through the life course. So an example of this, for example, is the idea of the protest generation that came of age in the 60s and 70s. Uh, since Mannheim, other scholars, many other scholars, have taken up this idea of political generations, and one of them has been uh, Becker. And Becker uh, defined a generation as characterized by a specific historical, historical setting and common characteristics. And he identified these different generations, the pre-war generation, the silent generation, the protest generation, the last generation, and the pragmatic generation. Now, um, this table um, quickly shows a comparison between different generations that have been adopted in the literature, just a selection of studies. As you can see, there's some slight differences between them uh, in terms of the formative uh, period and in terms of the years of birth. But by and large, there's a lot of similarity between them. There's a pre, uh, if you can see the top one, that's the one that I employ in my research on Western Europe. You can see that there's a pre-World uh, War II generation, a post-World War II generation, 1670s, 80s, and 90s. And those are that's the first, is, the first bracket is the period in which they experience their formative years, and the second is the years of birth. So based on this idea of political generations and also linking up to research on political participation, where particularly in the most recent context, there's all these worries about political disengagement, particularly amongst the youngest generations, we can spell out some hypotheses, some research questions um, to link these two, two ideas. So we might expect that generations that came of age um, in certain contexts where different forms of participation were more prevalent, were more important for the ways in which uh, individuals express themselves, might um, engage in different patterns of participation um, based on this factor. And so, for example, we might expect that older generations that came of age when political parties were fundamental to the way uh, political um, um, uh, 
participation was conducted um, compared to generations that came of age in the 60s and 70s um, where uh, unconventional modes of participation uh, became much more relevant in this um, you know, tumultuous uh, period uh, might exhibit different patterns of participation on that basis. Um, and then obviously there's an open question about the generations that came of age in subsequent periods, um, whether they maintain these high levels of protest activism or whether those levels have fallen back again. And we also have questions about implications and what might happen in the future. So the issue though that is, is that, you know, as some of you might know, when we study social change, uh, we run into some quite um, important methodological hurdles. So uh, the point is that we need to understand the difference between age, period, and cohort effects. These three effects have very different implications for social change. And so unless we devise methods that actually address this question, we're not really able to um, pick up on what are the real generational effects and not just uh, given by aging or the historical context. And therefore, we cannot make sense of future patterns, what we might expect from the future. So generally, we think of intergenerational replacement as guiding social change. So as older generations with certain political habits and political values die out, they're replaced by younger generations that have new values and participation patterns. And this, on the aggregate, leads to social change because populations change. Um, but we need to address this age, period, and cohort identification problem to be able to get at this. And through the years, there's been a very large statistical literature that has addressed this issue. Now, different studies will use different ways to address this problem because they will have different research questions. They will be interested in different types of problems substantively. And so we need to divide, divide, uh, devise techniques to address this methodological issue that is related to the research questions that we've got at, at hand. And so the, the key issue is that HP and quarter are in a linear relationship with each other, and so they cannot be estimated simultaneously. So we need to make some theoretically supported simplifying assumptions to be able to break this linearity and to be able to estimate these effects. Now, um, just to I'd very quickly go through this, because this is quite sort of statistically um, uh, minded uh, information, but in this study that I run on Western Europe with 10 countries, the way this is dealt with is by using repeat cross-sectional data. So the data comes from the European value studies, and it's um, from those years, 1981, 1990, 1999, and 2008. And this is useful because it means that we can observe generations over the life cycle in different ages, in different age groups. And what we do, what I do, is um, I combine two different types of models. Um, so the first type is a multi-level model with random effects for time, which relies on a categorization of courts. So we split um, uh, the generations into five different groups that I've shown you previously. And that, this is the simplifying assumption that allows us to break the linearity and estimate age period and cohort effects. But then, because of this point that, you know, there's a seamless continuum of daily births, as Spitzer puts quite nicely. And so there's always an ambiguity about where you apply these cuts. Um, we combine this with another method, which is to use generalized additive models, or here in this context, because it's comparative, uh, generalized additive mixed models, which allow us to actually visualize the smoothed chord effect. And that does not rely on a categorization of cohorts, and so it overcomes this need, and it means that we have two different methods that are speaking to the same question, and given that we find the same results, or very similar results, we can trust that they're robust, that you know, we, we, sorry, we have faith in them. So uh, I'm not gonna present the multi-level models, but I can tell you where to find them if you like. I'm just going to show you the smoothed, uh, generalized uh, additive model graphs. Um, uh, since they are, you know, uh, similar results in any case, and they're a bit nicer to look at. So here, uh, these are the smoothed chord effects from the generalized additive models, as I said. So on the left, uh, our uh, left top quadrant is party membership. Uh, left bottom quadrant is social movement organization participation. Uh, right top quadrant is uh, demonstrating, and bottom right hand quadrant is signing a petition. So, based on our theorizing, you know, um, on political generations and their participation patterns, um, 
you know, the, the patterns that we see are very close to what we would expect based on political generations theory. As you can see in the top left-hand quadrant for party membership, the, the smooth chord effect starts declining right over the years of birth of the 60s and 70s protest generation. So what this is showing us is that the generations that came of age before the, the 60s and 70s are much more likely to engage through parties than generations that came of age afterwards. And this is a declining effect over the youngest generations. Interestingly, beneath party membership, we've got social movement organization participation. And because social movements became more popular in this moment, you might expect that the pattern there would be some more similar to that for demonstrating and protest. In the, in signing a petition. But actually what we find is that there's a similar pattern here too, which suggests that older generations are more likely to engage with generations, uh, with organizations more generally. So not just parties, but also other types, such as environmental or human rights organizations. On the right instead, we've got the protest activism indicators. At the top is attending a demonstration, and at the bottom is signing a petition. And here instead you see this rising trend where you see the peak right over the years of birth of the protest generation that came of age in the tumultuous 60s and 70s. So this generation really does stand out as you know, the protest generation. And uh, um, in conclusion, I would, I would just wrap up very quickly to say that it's important to be you know, mindful about age period and cohort effects. We really need to consider the identification problem if we want to make sense of social change and what patterns might be happening in, in the, you know, what, what patterns might be obtaining in the future. Because if we just take a cross-section and then split this up by generations on your birth, we don't know if we're actually seeing an aging effect. So we need to really bear this in mind if we want to say something about generations and actually say something about social change. And uh, as we see, the generations are distinguished in their patterns of political participation, as we hypothesized. And what are the implications of this? Well, you know, historical context really matters, it seems, when, you know, generations came of age really seems to have an impact on their patterns of participation and differentiates them. And um, what might this spell in the future? Well, now we've seen, you know, the young generations in particular taking to the streets for climate change. Is this the birth of a new protest gen generation? Uh, we will see. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very, very interesting and uh, uh, absolutely something that we recognize here because in our own research, uh, often focusing more on assets and the economic position of people of different ages, we are ourselves trying to disentangle the three effects, as you say, period effects, life cycle effects, cohort effects, and uh, you clearly apply great sophistication to that in political science. Um, and also, if I may lower the tone, I sometimes in my discussions with cons fellow conservatives, um, I say, okay, we're appealing to older voters. If this is systematically appealing to people at that stage of the life cycle, we're fine. If we are currently appealing to the over 50s, and in 10 years' time we're appealing to the over 60s, and 10 years after that it's the over 70s, we have a serious problem. <laughs> and um, you will find that even in the tea room of the House of Commons, sometimes they issue services in that form. So you have, your analysis is very relevant to a whole range of economic and political issues. Thank you so much. Right, now Jane, who has thought about this from the perspective mm. of demographics, your, your observations, Jane? Yeah, thank, thank you very much. First of all, thank you, Maria. That was really, really um, fascinating. And, and I did have the pleasure of reading your articles as well before, before you talked. Um, I was really interested in whether you've looked at the size of the generations and whether, whether that matters, and just thinking about some of the work of Richard Easterlin and others. And um, also, in some of my very early work that I did with Professor John Hills at, at the London School of Economics, we looked at how different generations uh, were benefiting from the welfare state and how that changed across time. And th this idea of a golden generation uh, came through, those born in the 1930s, which benefited from changes to the welfare state all the way through. So they benefited from the introduction of um, uh, universal secondary education and then the expansion of, of higher education. And gradually, as they aged through, they benefited from all sorts of changes. And I know in some of your other work, you've looked at the impact of, of social policy and how that influences um, political participation. So I'd be interested in, in your views on that. And thinking through, given the work that you're doing is um, comparative across Western Europe, 
what you think is going on in France at this very moment in, in time. Um, because uh, uh, pensions actually is one of the drivers uh, and thinking about political generations in a UK context, there have been um, different generations which have benefited or not benefited from the changes in, in the pensions legislation and David himself has done work on this. Um, but when I started my career, I was expecting to uh, retire this September. Um, I'm not going to retire this September, but you can work out when I was born. I'm <laughs> going to carry on until I'm 67. Um, but there have been big, big changes and how, again, how that's impacted on, on different generations and how that may feed through into their political participation. So I'll leave it there, but very, well, very Mike, interesting. Mike, do you want to quickly come to that before we come to Sophie? Oh, it's fine. I'm happy to take the, the responses and then respond if that's... If that's okay, up. well, let's, have, let's hear from Sophie next. Okay, and we'll then, and you then come on to Sophie, your observations. Sure. Um, so I guess some of my first comments kind of reflect what David said. So first, this, you know, really resonates with us and it really highlights some of the issues that, that, that we deal with in our work. So where you're kind of focused more on... Um, like the political participation angle um, and as David said we focus a bit more on kind of the economic outcomes and how that's varying across generations but this this issue of of separating out um, cohort age and, and period effects is is really important for us as well so we look at wealth and you know we're trying to understand to what extent is the the differences that we're seeing in wealth across generations down to um, this kind of age life cycle effect and, and how much of it is the cohort effect. Um, and similarly, we have the same when we're looking at, um, uh, you know, the stagnant wage growth that we've seen over the last decade, um, you know, to what extent is this kind of a period effect because it's, you know, affecting affecting all age, all age groups and versus kind of the, the impact it's having through a kind of cohort effect. Um, and that's the kind of angle where, we, where we're looking at the same issues and, and have kind of a similar approach in, in the work that we do in the Intergenerational Centre. Um, and also, as David said, I mean, it's quite topical, this, this, this you know, I mean, there's the FT article um, not long ago, which did look at exactly, as you were saying, um, you know, are millennials, uh, you used a slightly different generational um, sort of terminology, but, you know, the millennial um, generation, are they sort of bucking the trend that we've seen of past generations where um, the commentary was they are... Um, they are not becoming more conservative as they get older, which is the, the, the trend that we've seen with, with all the generations that kind of came before them. And I guess the hypothesis was, you know, to what extent is this about kind of their um, educational um, uh, background, which we'll talk about a bit more. Um, but actually, you know, there's a, there's a number of other factors that could be kind of playing into that as well. Um, I thought I would quickly talk about some work that the Resolution Foundation did quite a few years ago, just because I thought it was quite um, relevant. It sort of predates my, my time here at the Resolution Foundation and working on intergenerational issues, but I thought it was um, particularly kind of relevant to this conversation. Uh, and as I said, it, it was a bit older, so it, it predates the 2017 and 2019, the last two general elections, but it was looking at, you know, the um, youth kind of turnout um, and, the, and the decline in youth um, turnout in elections and kind of that political participation angle um, and it kind of combines it with some of the kind of economic um, uh, outcomes and trends that we focus a lot of our time thinking about um, and two in particular are um, uh, housing tenure um, and that implications for that on political participation and qualification level um, and so I'm just going to be really cheeky and like put up a couple of the charts from that report um, but the first one here is by um, housing tenure um, and what we found was I mean you know across all generations renters are, are, are less um, likely to, to vote than their kind of counterparts who are homeowners um, and you can see that across you know these these three generations that that we have here millennials, Gen X and, ba and baby boomers. Um, but what has been part of the, you know, what might explain part of the drive on, on the fall in youth um, participation is the fact that we know that more millennials and more, ge more Gen X are renters now than they were, um, than baby boomers were at the same age. So that's kind of driving part of this. But actually what this chart shows, the other thing that it is possibly explaining this is this increase in the gap between renters and homeowners. So for baby boomers, they much much more similar um, rates of, of, of voter participation than than you see for those those kind of millennial lines where we see a really big gap emerging. Yeah. The other one is educational attainment. So if we can look at that quickly, and we see a similar um, similar kind of pattern here. 
the, um, the, the kind of economic trends, so the fact that we actually have a much higher rates of educational participation, um, of educational attainment amongst younger generations, suggests that actually you should be seeing this pushing in the other direction, so higher voter um, turnout amongst younger generations, because um, those with higher educational attainment tend to um, be more likely to vote, and our evidence kind of very much supports the wider group of evidence that that, that a lot, you know that finds the same thing. Um, but again, we see this emerging gap in younger generations where um, the proportion of millennials without a degree um, are, are much much less likely to vote than than um, the kind of equivalent um, groups in, in in past generations, for example, in baby boom, the baby boomers. So. Um, for baby boomers without degrees are about 15% less likely to vote during their 20s than degree holders, but for millennials, that gap opened up to about 40%. And as I say, some of this evidence is you know, a little bit old now. Um, this, is, this is up to 2015, so it, it predates the last two elections, but um, I just thought it was kind of interesting and, and, and kind of really brings in, you, you talked a lot about formative experiences and how that influences it, but also how these economic trends can be influencing um, political participation across generations as well. Um, yeah, I mean, finally, I wanted to kind of bring it back to the other thing that we think about, which is, okay, well, um, you know, how maybe political participation may be influencing outcomes, and we've kind of talked about that a little bit, and our, our last intergenerational audit looked at um, how different age groups benefit have benefited from um, uh, changes to working age and, and pension, be state pension benefits working age benefits and the state pension um, since 2010. Um, and what we found is that, you know, it massively favored those who were 65 and above. So non-pensioners on average um, were 816 pounds worse off as a result of changes to these working age benefits and pen um, while since 2010, while pensioners are 666 pounds better off. Um, and this very much aligns with those, you know, that kind of um, participation. Um, and so I think what your research showed is, you know, there's lots of ways that you can look at political participation, but that, you know, voter turnout is a incredibly important one. And it's incredibly important for um, the economic outcomes of, of, of groups um, that are kind of attending those elections as well. So yeah, just some yeah. reflections. Yeah. Really interesting yes. comments. So, why don't you, do you want to give some comments on those comments? How long? How long for? Just how a few long minutes. Have you got? Well, I think if we're getting some on Q and A, but for, for a few minutes, quick. Yes, we have a panel discussion first, and the Q and A questions will carry on coming in. But your observations first on okay. what Jane and Sophie say. So, you know, obviously, there's you know, really, yeah, really interesting, com really interesting comments here. So there's a lot to pick up on, but just to focus on the, the key points. So obviously, you know, a lot of um, uh, important scholars have looked at uh, generation. This is idea of social change, and you know, you mentioned Easterlin, for example, and the size of uh, generations and how, how that impacted on the fortunes of different groups, and that's a very, you know, important theory. But also Inglehart. Um, you know, had this in really interesting theory of post-materialism, which you know has been, you know, debated and discussed and published, you know, in in, you know, in many articles and books, and it's also been you know taken up on over time in different uh, publications. You know, there's a Silent Generation, but then there's also Culture Shift and so forth. And his his theory is really interesting because it links up to this idea of modernization, and it links up to this idea of um, you know, it, it's similar in some ways to some of the concepts that you brought up with the golden generation. Um, so his, his theorizing is that we, are, we, we rely on this Maslowian hierarchy of needs. So it's only once that we satisfy the more basic needs for protection and security that then we can move forth to the higher order needs. So for example, um, political engagement or thinking about artistic beauty and so forth. So his theorizing argues that because of the scarcity hypothesis, we tend to um, first be concerned about materialist values. So, you know, for example, items in service such as protecting from rising prices like inflation. And only then do we move on once these needs are satisfied to protest. And his argument is that the generations that came in the post-war period, with rising affluence, but also the expansion of education and so forth, were much more likely to prioritize these post-material values. So first of all, to have more um, 
you know, uh, post-material types of interests at the values level, but also linked this, this idea of engaging in elite challenging participation. So there's elite directed participation, according to him, which is, you know, that, that which is linked to parties and voting and um, a, a sort of mainstream, what we tend to associate with mainstream traditional political participation. And then there's elite challenging participation, which is the idea of protesting, uh, petitioning and so forth. And um, this is interesting because it ties into, you know, not just with the ideas that you brought up, but also with a wider discussion around what is a democracy and what kind of citizens do we want. And, you know, um, uh, there's the idea of critical citizens and, you know, da uh, Russell Dalton and Pippa Norris have, re have discussed these types of ideas where they say that the, the current democratic citizens have moved from being dutiful citizens to being more critical and more engaged citizens, citizens that challenge the ideas that are being presented to them and, um, and do so in, in various ways. So I think that's an interesting aspect to consider, which is, you know, in what ways does material affluence of the post-war period change the behaviours of generations? And how does then this tie into the current moment where we might be actually seeing a situation, you know, we have seen the Great Recession, for example, but we've also seen other types of crises. Um, you know, there's an environmental crisis, you know, that, that, that is ongoing. Um, and also, you know, we've had a, a, health, a health crisis, very obviously. And, you know, we, there's a, you could say that the economic crisis is, this is sort of, there's, a, there's some, you know, economic issues that are ongoing uh, from the Great Recession. And how does that, what implications does this have for the generation that is coming of age now? Um, how, you know, because of course it's these formative experiences during the impressionable years that really matter. And so what kind of impact will the experience of living in a situation of economic crisis with the Great Recession, for example, and various other tensions that, you know, that, 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 we, might, uh, that we might pick up on, what impact is this going to have on the current generation that is coming of age in this moment? How is this going to shape their political attitudes and their political behaviors? And, and so I think this is what we want to be picking up on, which is, okay, the, the, the post-war generation came up with expansion of education, uh, rising material affluence. There's a period, you could say, of some have described as of unbridled optimism of the 60s, you know, and then so forth. Has this changed? <laughs> are, are, we, are we seeing... Are we, is the new generation coming up in a different, in a substantively different climate to other generations that came of age before? I think this is quite an important one. Um, I think what's also interesting is that, you know, obviously with the type of work you do is, is great because you can really focus on the national context and uh, you can really zoom in on, on, on trends in that way. And, uh, you know, you don't have to run into some of the issues that I run into with some of more, my more comparative work. But in terms of the types of participation, I think you're right. I mean, voting is really interesting because, you know, on one level, there's an argument that says, okay, well, the younger generations might be voting at lower levels, but it's not such a big deal because they're expressing themselves in other ways. But against that, some might argue, well, but it's only through voting that you can actually, you know, you can really uh, select your representatives. And so maybe there's something quite unique about those types of traditional uh, modes of engagement, which really allow to have a, allow you uh, through representation to have a say on how your country is run. Um, on in future work, I'm uh, in current work that I'm working on. I'm really also bringing up the gender element. I think gender is really important for making sense of a lot of these patterns. Um, you know, moving forward, and, and more broadly, you know, debates around intersectionality and so forth have brought up this idea that you know, we need to think about all these different dimensions and how they intersect of age. You know, age is important, and we've seen age and generation are you know, actually both important and can be spelled out in different ways. But we also need to start thinking about you know, within age, you know, for example, you bringing up education and renting, these are really important aspects to, that we need to be picking up on and, uh, you know, also the way in which they might be intersecting with age or, or sorry, with, with gender or ethnicity um, uh, or occupational uh, class. And these are all different aspects that need to be picked up. And so in my current work, I'm looking at the way in which gender and generation interact. Um, for example, uh, looking at um, you know, and this links up back to, you know, your earlier points, uh, support for um, uh, public spending and different p types of public spending. You know, obviously, you know, uh, childcare is a particularly important issue um, in, in, in many respects. Um, and uh, so I think moving into the future, these are really important aspects to explore because, 
you know, if generations are not socialized into voting and they're not socialized into voting for a certain party, for example, uh, then this might be sort of some, you know, uh, something that becomes a political habit that then, get, you know, is carried on into the future. Um, and so um, trying to make sense of these patterns, I think, is particularly important to make sense of what we might expect uh, uh, from trends moving forward. I hope that addresses some of that. Very helpful. I, I'm going to follow up on that and bring in our, a, a question that's relevant to this. But first of all, just to go back to Jane's point on size of generations. Uh, oh, yeah. I must say my own book on this is heavily influenced by the argument that how big a cohort you're in matters. And it's striking how almost exogenous in your account is what you call the protest generation who were um, in their young adulthood in the 60s and 70s. But for those of us who are interested in generation size, there is, a, I think, a very persuasive argument that societies which have a surge in the number of people in adolescence or early adulthood tend to be uh, societies go through periods of disruption, including high amount, large amounts of protest. And so we don't, I don't think it's an accident that the two biggest London riots, the poll tax riot and the, uh, before that, the Grosvenor Square riot, were 20, 21 years after the two peaks in the British birth rate of 1947 and, and 1965. So, so, the, so exogenous to your account could be a generation size account. So the fact that they're a protest generation is partly determined by their having been a very large number of young people driving social and economic change. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, so I, mean, I, I don't agree with Easton on all the implications yeah, of being yes. a, a large versus more, but I think that m the number of how big a generation you are and the ratio when you are in your 20s to the number of older authority figures itself may change the culture and experiences of a generation. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, this is an empirical question, and there's obviously work that's been done on this. Um, so we can go out and, you know, look at the data and explore this question. I think what's really interesting about the protest generation of the 60s and 70s is this fact of um, a generation that entered higher education uh, in, in, in much greater numbers for the first time, you know, the first time, you know, these great numbers of people that go into universities. And um, the, you know, you could argue that this actually was a really preponderant factor for 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 their mobilization, because all of a sudden you have lots of young people, um, in coming together in yeah. one place, lots yeah. of young people from different social backgrounds, yeah. um, uh, you know, which you know initially university had been the, the preserve of the elite, and all of a sudden you have people from all sorts of social sectors coming in and exchanging ideas, and you have this this period of you know experimentation, but also kicking back against authority already in the university uh, you know classrooms, you might say, that then sort of you could argue spills over into them starting to question not just this educational authority, but then all sorts of other authorities. Um, through, you know, throughout society, and maybe it's this. You know, you could you can make a, a similar argument saying that maybe it's yeah. it's this experience. Um, you know, in social movement theory, there's these arguments about biographical availability. You know, the idea that um, students, for example, have a lot of time on their hands, so they they're biographically available. To, to <laughs> we try not to. No, you know, they don't. Have, <laughs> well, you know, the, the yeah. point being that you yeah. know, there's yeah. you know, they don't have you know a, yeah. a, a, a full-time job. They don't have, you know, the young that, you know, they don't have um, the, the children yet. So they come all together in a university. They can, they have time also because the way they're thinking through their own studies about challenging, you know, a, a questioning the ideas that were put before them. You know, they start challenging and questioning all sorts of other ideas. And, uh, you know, they're there, they can organize, they can mobilize, they can, you know, you can think about Berkeley and the free speech movement and Students for a Democratic Society. And, you know, that's a typical example that might be brought up in this sort of context with Paris 1968 and so forth. So maybe that's another, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. you know the theory yeah, for why. Well, one of the reasons why we had the university expansion was precisely because of the pressure from the surging mm -hmm. numbers of young people. Yeah. So they do all interact in yeah. very interesting ways. Yeah. And, there's a, and we've got a question that relates to this because as we try to track the what are the kind of formative pressures? What is what's exogenous in all this? Um, uh, we have this interesting question, which has been voted: How does housing or renting, a gen 
generation rent <laughs> impact on this? Because indeed, as you heard from we had one of the best pieces, one of the best titles for any research group, we had a wonderful <laughs> paper a few years back called Votey McVoteface, <laughs> nice. which was our investigation of voting behaviour, vote, uh, voting participation by young people, which showed that although there were some people offering cultural explanations for a decline in young people voting, um, in reality, the biggest driver, as Sophie was saying, as more of them were in the private rented accommodation, and registering to vote if you're in the private rented sector is much harder, you're moving around, you're less likely to be on the register. Declining young people's voting participation was pretty much accounted for by the shift to them, more and more of them being in the private rented sector. And so that's one type of private rented argument. Another argument is just your experience of society if you're in the private rented sector and don't think of yourself as a property owner is different. So as you, especially as you've got this advantage, this, this fascinating comparative work you do, do you think that how relevant is housing tenure in understanding at key stages of the life cycle the political and social attitudes of different groups? Well, we saw some really interesting graphs about this and uh, you know, some very striking patterns there. So, um, But yeah, I mean, uh, normally when we, so we talk about the age, age period and cohort effects. Um, with age, normally what we tend to think of is this idea of life cycle effect. So the idea of social aging and the way in which that might bring on certain participatory patterns. So in general, we see this curvilinear relationship between age and voting, for example. So as you know, individuals age and you know, their life patterns stabilize, they vote more and more and more, and then we see a tailing off. Um, and, um, and so when we normally talk about uh, life cycle effects and this um, maturation um, you know, uh, occurring, we think of different events. And obviously, these will be different for different people. But um, you know, typically, we talk about uh, you know, marriage, having a job, having children. But by buying a home and set settling into a home, um, or find, making a home is also part of this. So one aspect might be that, you know, this idea of home ownership might be linked on some level to an idea of maturation. Um, and um, so, you know, that we have, we have seen um, some interesting uh, studies also on this idea of delayed maturation mm -hmm. in the current mm -hmm. context and this idea that, you know, it takes longer for young people to, um, you know, be able to make these different steps that would lead them to be more settled, say, in a certain area or in a certain environment. And then if we take, you know, if we look at the studies, um, you know, on, on this topic, that would suggest that this type of maturation would also lead you to have more stable political allegiances and, and maybe have a clear idea of which party reflects your interests. Mm -hmm. and therefore which party you might be wanting to vote for. Um, and so, you know, to an extent, um, you know, if you consider that buying or renting might be signs of being more rooted in a certain social environment, um, then perhaps that might have relevant implications given this discussion for, you know, your participatory patterns and uh, voting behaviour. Sophie, you want to add on that? Yeah, I mean, I guess this one thing question. that I find very interesting from the graph that we showed, and, and education attainment and rent, rental and housing tenure are kind of different in this um, aspect, which is that, you know, the, the proportion with degrees has increased, whereas the proportion who are renting has, has increased. So there were people who were renting in the current, in the kind of millennial generation who in, in previous generations with their kind of, um, you know, income and, and kind of economic background would have would have been homeowners so my kind of prior would be you'd expect that gap to be closing i.e that the, these people who are renters you would maybe expect them to look more like the homeowners um in in their generation rather than seeing this like massive gap um growing between renters and between um and between homeowners so um it's kind of almost uh, not expected um, for me that, that that yes you would expect the fact that there are more renters as you say maybe having this like um, maturation effect as, as you put it which is a great way of thinking about it but um, 
making that the young less likely to vote overall but the fact that that that, that gap has emerged is, is is what's most surprising in that chart to me it's very interesting jane and yeah no really really interesting and there's another group as well who are not renting and who are not homeowners but who are actually returned to the parental home mm -hmm. yes and that's that's a growing group so we see more um people in their late 20s still living in the parental home and i'd be really interested in how that in turn interacts and um, I don't know um, Maria if you've done anything on intergenerational transmission of voting behavior so if people who are living with their parents are they more likely to um, vote if their parents vote or not vote if their parents don't yeah it's a potentially interesting so, area yeah I mean that's very interesting obviously I've not done directly work on this but of course there's a very large literature and you know there's a youth parent socialization study in the US um, with Jennings and Niemi is a very important study that was carried out and a lot of work has been done on this topic on, on these um, with, with that data for example um, and um, so it's really interesting because you know obviously there's various papers on this and it's a you know it's a it's a large literature but uh, one of the things that was interesting about old the old uh, studies um, about in a 1983 study by Jennings is that while it's about um, how children tend to talk to their father more about politics which is you know interesting about the way in which uh, socialization and intergenerational transmission might have worked back you know, maybe in the past, but it would be interesting to, to, I'm sure there's more work being carried out to see how that um, works out today and how the influence of the, uh, of, of uh, you know, different um, uh, par parents might, might uh, plan out, which would be interesting to look at. But it's also interesting if we look at this idea of votes of 16, um, because of course one argument there is to say that, well, if, um, you know, with younger, with, uh, you know, younger uh, people, there's more of an opportunity to, you know, it links to the family, but it also links to schools. There's more of an, an opportunity to carry out uh, civic education through schools and so forth, and therefore, is a, you know, to socialize uh, young people into participation at an earlier time. Um, but of course, there's also, you know, arguments against that idea um, uh, for various reasons. So it's in, you know it's interesting all these different things sort of I can say uh, the way play that, out. The way that parental influence worked in my family is that as my children got to voting, if they wanted their father to keep having a job, <laughs> then they should vote conservative in the constituency. But now they're liberated from such considerations. Um, now, I think we should also have interventions. Uh, yes, there was a, a guy here who wanted to put a question from the floor. And, then, and while that is being collected, I'm just going to signal, a, we're going to do a polling question that you can uh, think about. So let's find the polls. Right, we've got disconnected for some reason. I'm trying to reconnect. Can we call up the poll? Yes, here we are. Um, so for our online participants, we're, trying, we're going to ask a kind of balance that you reach between these three factors, this kind of bar-fugue of the three different strands, age, uh, the cohort to which you belong, and uh, current period effects affecting all of us. So you vote between the, which is the most important of these three, and while you reflect on this, we'll have a question from a participant here with us. Over to you, Sam. Uh, thank you. I was wondering the extent to which that the reason why my parents' generation, the protest generation, might not have joined parties might be precisely because their parents did. So if, for instance, they went along to a party meeting, they might have found people like their parents talking about the sorts of things that their parents were interested in and thought this wasn't for them. Uh, reaction against. That is a hypothesis. Yeah. I don't know. Do we know? Is there any evidence on this that we're aware of? Oh, it's a, again, it's an empirical question. We should, <laughs> you know, we could run some studies and maybe this, you know, and uh, ask people, you know, uh, uh, these questions. I, I'm not sure. Um, you know, it might be, you, you could say that it's about parents, but it could also be that, you know, different periods, historical periods have, you know, different requirements and different political issues that you know individuals might have felt 
we're not really being tackled through participation, through parties and the old, the, you know, as, as, they've been, as they've been called, the old politics of the past. But they needed a new politics. So a new engagement with, you know, issues, for example. So this is the idea of the new politics is that you know, in the past, the key issues were all around, you know, economic questions and redistribution. But since the 60s and the 70s and 80s, new issues have emerged as well. Um, so, for example, these issues relate to um, the cleavage between, in, based on social values, so not, not from just you know, economic issues, but also those relating to, for example, the environment or um, uh, various issues around uh, gender equality and so forth. And more broadly, universalism and tolerance and openness to different groups. And so, for some, this is a perpendicular axis of competition. Others say that, for example, in, in certain contexts, these two axes you know, actually end up overlapping. Different parties take ownership over different issue, issues. But the point being that you know, it might be that new generations who are you know, interested in these types of issues, like the environment, feel that none of the parties in a given context are tackling these issues. And so their only way to, bring, to raise awareness and to bring these issues on the agenda is to you know engage through protests and social movements and therefore open up the debate um, on these uh, new issues. So that might be you know an explanation, but you know, you, you could, you know there's other ones as well. Let's let's quickly go back to the polling. Let's see now the answer, how people have voted on this question, and that's interesting. They've got the. The events happening around us are significantly more influential, either than where we are on the life cycle or which cohort we're in. Very interesting. And of course, there are absolutely very powerful period effects that shape us all. Um, and so we're all affected in different ways by the cost of living crisis, but it's a very powerful influence on all of us, exactly um, whatever our age, though it may hit us in different ways. Um, I've got in the, I'm going to, before we come back into the, people physically here with us. Going back to the Q&A, we've had a kind of strand of questions about um, forms of political participation, where, which again forces us to try to disentangle these different effects. Uh, and that's the rise, obviously, of social media. Um, so there's questions like this one, whether the what constitutes political participation has just profoundly changed by virtue of the rise of uh, social media. Um, so trying to measure how different generations have, have the extent to which they polit politically participated is heavily affected by massive changes in the technology and the cultural environment. And we've had several questions like this one. Uh, Jane, do you want to set off? Do you want any observations about this issue? And then we'll hear from Sophie and Maria. I don't think it's an either-or, is it? I, I think that it, certainly uh, engagement with social media has changed the way people participate, but I think people still participate in those traditional forms as well, in terms of voting and, and protesting and signing petitions. Um, I had the pleasure of being tagged in, in a tweet with you, David, yesterday. And my, um, my social media has exploded. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> but, um, but it was very interesting to see all the responses on social media mm -hmm. to, for example, your, your blog on housing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that... So that's one way of expressing themselves. But I think it, it's, it's just an, an, an additional way. But perhaps, yep. perhaps Maria's the expert. She can tell us. I'm not a political scientist. I'm well, a social scientist. Uh, no. Generically, uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that, and um, yeah. So I mean, obviously, with the birth of online political participation, you know, more broadly, there's new forms that we didn't have before. Um, discuss discussing politics yeah. online, you, know, you couldn't do that before. We had, uh, you know, the online. Um, but then, in other ways, um, I wouldn't say that you know uh, these different mediums have surpassed. You know the need for other modes of engagement but in a sense they have augmented them and almost supported them because it, you know in some ways organizing a demonstration you know you think of the Ignatius movement or even you know fff the fridays for future 
um, you know, climate activism. You know, uh, organizing protests through social media actually allows messages about the protest, the news about the protest, you know, to reach so many more people, and in that sense, really facilitates mobilization. So uh, there's a sense in which um, you know, online participation has really supported participation in various forms. Um, but some would argue that you know it has also detracted uh, from participation in some way. So there's you know debates around this idea of slacktivism. Um, but uh, you know, are people just some people participating online, but not then going into the streets or voting and participating in the you know real ways? Um, but by and large, you see that a lot of activists you know combine different modes of participating within their toolkit. Um, and so that you know, uh, online participation and social media is actually a very powerful tool uh, for mobilizing and supporting participation, particularly amongst the youngest generations. Sophie, anything you want to add on that? Uh, I mean, I don't have loads to add. I, I mean, we were actually having quite an interesting conversation just today about some of this, um, uh, some topics related to this, but particularly around, you know, to what extent does that kind of online social platform and, and the views that are being um, kind of... Uh, presented on in in the kind of way that you would interact with Twitter or, or Facebook like does that actually reflect reality and does that actually reflect like what the general population feels and and, yeah. and believes and particularly how does that then get echoed up to the people who are the policymakers and the decision makers um, and and does it give them a kind of distorted view of what the population is actually thinking and believing um, and it, and is that changed in some sort of substantive way from from the generation before the these kind of online social media platforms um, and I thought that was really interesting when you mm. then apply that to kind of politics you know do people believe that they're um, politically like abnormal um, because maybe they're not seeing their views um, reflected and in, in the in on these kind of platforms and, and maybe that could actually make you even more disengaged um, when in reality you might actually be much closer to what a, a, an average mm -hmm. view is um, yeah. than, than what you're seeing yeah and I think probably um, parliamentarians would say that participation in the form of going to a meeting or or writing some kind of email or letter of your own, it probably is a, is a more significant form of engagement than the people who press the button to send the standard email, the standard proposition of which now you can have hundreds, if not thousands, when something is prominent. But you wonder if they just pressed that button at midnight when they were skimming through stuff, is how, how much weight to attach to that message as distinct from someone coming to see you in your surgery or going out on a wet, wet evening mm -hmm. to, to lobby you at a protest meeting. And so the relative weighting is a delicate matter, and it's very hard to find a way through it. Um, now, I think there was another question here physically. Yes, so we'll go to the gentleman there. Yep. Thanks a lot. Um, so my, I have actually two questions. One's quite uh, quick, and you can uh, go through with your expert opinions. And the second one is the more broader question. First question is, when do you stop conditionally attaching variables <laughs> to um, to make the conclusions that you do um, because this is a field that is fraught with a quick ability to get into like multicollinearity like all kinds of weird stuff statistically second one is more broader question which is especially for uh, I'm anecdotally 32 years old um, so I um, generationally have seen a monetarist attempt to respond to a financial crisis, policy making and the political and economic imaginary are almost non-existent in our, in, in our view when people say, oh, there's a general disengagement with my, with my gener generation. I, I would say the protest generation, which the, the political and economic imaginary seemed wider, the economic system seemed more complex, it wasn't interest rate maturity adjustments um, that were being talked about on Berkeley campuses. They were talked about, there were, there was a, a, a broader conversation on participation and generational involvement. So I would say, that even with the Resolution Foundation, I saw a beautiful stream uh, a couple of weeks ago on the budget, um, and this was discussing about the different forecasts from the Bank of England and um, was it the IFS? No, um, OBR. Yeah, the OBR. Uh, and uh, the relative optimism of one or the other. So the feeling that forecasts um, statistically illiterate and literate individuals fighting it out 
are the ones who are just making decisions is, is overwhelming, I think, in my generation. And our understanding of that and the feeling of our asset price disenfranchisement <laughs> uh, across the board. So, so I think you're making a point, uh, and I think this might be an opportunity for people's final observation because we must end in five minutes. You're, you're, you're making a point about whether the political debate has now become very technocratic, I think is what you're... Yeah, your the concern. Would be involved is so small. Mm -hmm. There's another side to that, which has come up online, and uh, let's face it, we have to. Re this is a, a, demo a democracy of opinion. There's several people who have upvoted the question: Will MPs' behaviour impact on the generation? So, given all the um, allegations against Boris Johnson and lockdown, will that create a cynicism about politics that leads to disengagement? So which kind of complements what you're saying. One is the political arguments are very technocratic, and another is people don't really trust politicians and wish to engage them at all. So I think I would, we're now in, we, we might start with Sophie and then Jane and, have, and give the final word to Maria, just on where we think the trends are going. And if you wish to, if you have any observations on how we could actually increase engagement. Um, and in the light of our own polling, that people think there are, period effects here that are the most powerful. So we're all affected by the cost of living crisis. Mm -hmm. We've all what? been following in the media reports of how politicians behave during COVID. Now, what kind of engages people across different stages of the life cycle in politics? Is there anything you want to say on that, Sophie? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, big question. Um, so I guess, I mean, I think one of the things that kind of came up in, in your question was that maybe the economic systems were so different the economic systems almost that you were choosing between were so much more different from past generations than they are um, today. Um, and that the kind of narrowing of, of, of policy making and decision making is, is part of what could be um, leading to this like disenfranchisement with like the whole political process. Um, and then I would just kind of bring us back to the conversation we were having earlier where we see that actually the, the policy decisions that are being taken today um, and have been taken in the last decade by policymakers have had absolutely massive and monumental impacts on like the living standards of different groups and, and when we look at the, the impact across different age groups so um, you know the the impact the, the the change in state pension and what that has done for the living standards of pensioners versus people on working age benefits um, it's just a kind of quite a stark reminder that even if it feels like these are kind of decisions being taken by uh, a very small bunch of kind of economists who are very in the weeds and in the details it has like massive impacts yes. on living standards and so being politically engaged and having your say on on the decisions that are going to be on, on who is going to be taking those decisions is, is human is hugely important um, in my view so I think probably just kind of would wrap up with that and and how you kind of get people more engaged I mean that is a uh, is an interesting question I think our you know our job at Resolution Foundation is trying to persuade uh, policymakers to make the decisions that are best in 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 the interest of, of of people but not necessarily in trying to make people take the decisions that are in the best interest of them so that is an excellent resolution point. That, that they may look like technocratic decisions, but they really matter and they affect the living standards of millions of people. Absolutely. Jane, your observations mm. about that? Thank you. We're just building on, on, on what Sophie said. Um, or maybe not building, taking us in a different direction. I, I'm going to try and be optimistic about future engagement. And, and I think actually if we look at what's happening in, in other parts of Europe at the moment, um, that should give us optimism, although it's a, a little bit rocky in France at the moment. At least people are engaged, so people are, are thinking about these things. And if we actually think about climate change uh, and the engagement of, of all different age groups in climate change and protest, people are engaged. So um, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic. Thinking about the point that was raised earlier about uh, parents and going to meetings and, and not, not agreeing with them, uh, it'll be really interesting to look empirically as to whether we're, we see cycles, actually, whether we see cycles of um, engagement, because if that's the case, then we should, because we should be able to see between different generations that we're going up and down. And Maria's graph showed a, an up and then a down. And if we had another 30 years of data, will we see an up? Because you only had 30 years yeah. of data. And I'm just thinking if we had another 30 years, maybe we'll start to see that cycle. Maria, the last word with you. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so of course it's true the period effects affect us all, 
Um, but the insight of, generation, insight of generational theories is that they should have a greater effect on those generations that are coming of age at that time. And, you know, I agree, there's a lot of different factors that are um, at play and they're all interlinked, which is why we need to be very careful and nuanced when we set up the models and do things step by step and really look at the relationships between the different variables very carefully. And the point, you know, about the broader narratives, it's so true. I mean, if you look back, there seem to be you know, a greater discussion over, you know, grand narratives and different social systems and the way we should organize society, you know, in broader terms. Um, you know, back in that, the 60s and 70s um, uh, period. And so, uh, you know, in a sense, I suppose, if we look back also to the question about MPs and engagement, I would argue also in relation to that point that, you know, MPs and politicians more broadly today have a huge responsibility when it comes to um, engaging uh, current generations, to inspiring um, current generations, um, to um, motivate them to to participate and you know in proposing those solutions that need to carry us through into you know the 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 new the new the new the next the next phase in you know in our for our societies in the next historical period and the way in which we tackle the crises that we've you know that, that we're growing through will be absolutely important um, for for what what comes and also for determining the political participation patterns of the generations that are coming of age in the current moment, as well as their political values. Absolutely. And if you want to see an exemplary analysis of how a period effect, the cost of living crisis, affects different generations in different ways, our, the Resolution Foundation's very own Living Standards Audit is a case study in trying to apply that methodology and showing that for different generations it has ended up meaning different things. And it's political impact and understanding its political impact over decades to come will be a fascinating course of study. Thank you very much indeed for all our participants, both here at Resolution and online. In particular, thanks to Maria, Maria Glossa, Grasso, and Jane Fulham and Sophie Hale. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest Living Standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.